The most important aspect of wine is going to be the vineyard. It's going to be the fruit. If you want to make top flight wines, it has to be a top flight vineyard. We have a saying that you can make bad wine out of good grapes, but you can't make good wine out of bad grapes. Hey folks, you remember at the end of last week's episode when we said the fruit was going to be delivered first thing in the morning? Well, here we are, and there are tons of them. Hi, I'm Dana Elmquist. I'm here with Phil Staley and Matt Francis. We're in this huge warehouse in the back of Inkadoo Wines Custom Crush facility. I just asked Matt, what are we about to do? All of the grapes came in in the containers. They're still very cold. A lot of times they pick these at night, so the grapes are cold in the morning. And the idea is we want to get them processed as fast as possible before they start to break down on their own too much. And so what we're going to do first is comes into a big bin, dumped in by a forklift, put them in a big shaker. This table is going to shake them back and forth, and it's like a conveyor belt. And we're going to stand there and pull out the leaves and anything that shouldn't be in there. We're going to look for some moldy grapes that are in there. Okay, are you ready to rock? Are we having Mika on the line? I'll be on the line. Oh, okay. Amigo, Eparin. Ojas, insectas, cuchillos. Put you here. All I want you to do is take out leaves. Take out leaves? Leaves. Ojas. Because when it comes to mold and some other things, you need a trained eye for that. We'll fight now into different kinds of clusters. Sometimes we pull out clusters that they just don't look very good. Jazz and I can, can handle right, that. Okay. And you may get a little splashed. That's fine. We'll kind of smooth them out too, so that they're a little, like a single thin layer. Yeah. So you're taking out leaves right now, which is great. This is actually looking really clean. Phil, we just came off the lion's wedding grapes. I'm so curious, with all your knowledge about growing grapes, why did you choose not to own a vineyard? When I first started Ankadu, you know, I had a smidgen of money. I mean, I was looking at vineyard land, but I said, I'm not a grower, I'm a winemaker, and I want to produce wines. And we live in an area within California, and a good portion of California is like this, where we can source the top flight fruit that we need to make the types of wines, which is our goal. Immediately, it was one of those determinations that we weren't purchasing vineyard land. We were going to be buying our fruit, but establishing relationships with these growers that are producing top flight fruit. What that does, it gives us the flexibility to produce, you know, Pinot Noirs from the Russian River, which all the ocean influence, mild temperatures, yeah, the fog to moderate a lot of the intense heat that you find inland. And then also, I mean, I love Cabernet. I've been producing Cabernet since I first started making wines in 87. You know, we can go up into the mountains. We can go into warmer areas for that, much warmer than our ideal, let's say, for Pinot. And then even go further for Rhone varietals. And Rhone varietals love heat. And I do Petit Syrah at a Lake County, and it's regularly over 100 degrees there. Very dry, like in Spain and places like this. So it just gives us a much larger breadth of opportunity to make the types of wines that we want to make. And we also, we don't have that risk. I mean, if you're a farmer, there's a lot of risk, and it's really, really hard farming grapes. We sometimes forget that winemaking and, and wine industry is farming. We are dictated so much by weather. With Pinot Noir, you know, we've gone through a little bit of rain. You know, it's also been on a vine for quite a long time, so it's a really tight cluster, like Chardonnay, thin skin. So if you get rain, maybe some bird damage, the berries will burst. And if that happens, you can get an infection of mold. So Phil, why do we have to take the leaves out? So the leaves basically are gonna contribute a really bad acid or a bad tannin. It's almost like tea tannin, like really astringent, really dry, really horrible. Go ahead and bite one, you'll see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's just not good. Are you seeing any mold in this batch at all? No, I did find some of it in a Pinot I did a couple of days ago, but just a small amount. I mean, even in good years where it's dry, normally you find 
a little bit of bunch rot. They call it bunch rot. It's this botrytis scenario, and that's botrytis actually in sauterne wines, you know, or dessert wines. It, it's an advantage. You want that. We don't want it in our still wines. Yeah, yeah, at all. It creates volatile acidity. They tend to have a really high populations of lactobacillus in mold, and lactobacillus loves to eat sugar and produce really nasty volatile acidity, like vinegar, basically. All right, we got another load so, coming in. Yeah. A whole load of grapes was delivered. They were hand-picked. Talk to me about all the choices that went into those grapes being delivered today. This is a, a top flight Pinot Noir vineyard in a Russian River area of Sonoma County. It's farmed extremely well. It's one of the clones that we use that's really particular to our wines. The site is a great site. Those all lead to the growing of grapes that we really were looking to acquire. For me, as a winemaker, I am out in the vineyard and we're looking at the fruit and not, it's not just about numbers. In fact, a lot of times I don't look at numbers except when they start freaking me out. It's like, okay, it's getting too high, the sugar's getting too high, whatever, but I'm not picking based on sugar. It's based on what I am sensing when I'm tasting the fruit and what's the development of the seeds, what's the development of the skins and the flavor development. Once we make that call, you know, we work hand in hand and it's such a strong relationship that we have with the growers, it has to be, and we try to afford them as much respect as we can in meaning that I don't want to give them 24-hour notice. I want to let them know a few days ahead of time because they have to arrange crews. They may be picking somebody else at the same time and they may be overloaded with work. So you have to kind of work with one another what's going to work to get the grapes off the vine when you want them. In this case, you know, being a smaller winery, I'm actually able to transport a lot of my fruit. So I was there this morning picking up fruit and then bringing it into the winery and I get to be a truck driver along with being a winemaker along with you know a lot of other hats that we wear most places they start picking at midnight with the goal being done by seven or eight in the morning and then the grapes are picked up and hauled again so they're as old as possible when they get here you'll also notice when we're dumping the grapes that uh, there's already a lot of juice in there yeah and that's because that's a half ton of grapes so it's, it's physically it's, crushing, it's itself. crushing itself yeah and yeah. so that's why we got to get got that it. in the tanks as fast as possible and what we're doing, we're also collecting the juice on this, and we will take that juice and we will use it for rosé. Uh, I like my rosés actually to have a partial saigné to concentrate this amount of juice on the skins and adding a little bit more mid palate and richness to the wines. And so ours is it's about a half, it's about 50-50. So it's going to be 50%, a little bit more of a whole cluster that we brought in early. So we press that just like we do for white wines. And then the other remaining parts can be made up from the saigné that we've done. Yeah, so today was a really typical day for us when we were processing red grapes. We had four people inspecting. And what we're looking for is what we call mog, and it's materials other than grapes. The mog today was really, actually really pretty clean. Uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay are tight bunches and really thin-skinned. They have a tendency to have maybe a little bit of bunch rot because the berries will break. When the berries break, then basically mold can get in there. Today's was very clean. We had only a couple of clusters today that had that. And what is that sprayer for? What's she adding there? SO2. Sulfur dioxide. Okay, there we go. SO2 is added at this stage because it kills the microbes that you don't want. It kills the bad bacteria. The yeast can survive the levels that we use, and so that's how we give them a head start. That fruit that is inspected then gets destemmed. Stems go out the end of the machine, whereas all the fruit drops down straight down into a bin, and we don't pump our fruit. We actually are pretty gentle, especially with Pinot Noir. That bin will then go and be dumped into an open top tank. They vary in size. They can be two tons in size. They could be 30 tons in size. 
So Phil, why do you prefer these to be cut by hand rather than by a machine, or do you? Yeah, so hand harvesting is going to be a lot more gentle. You're not breaking berries. Also, the machines that go through, they're, they're pretty brutal. I mean, they do a great job of taking fruit off without actually damage to the vine. With machine harvest also, I find a lot of machines are not as clean as I like them to be. And so you get a lot of volatile acidity. And if you also are not as clean, you also might get other microbes in there as well. So I just prefer not to have machine harvest if at all possible. So we got the Pinot into the tanks. What happens next? I will first put in a certain percentage of non-processed Pinot Noir. This basically is whole cluster. And it could be 15%, it could be 20%. We'll then, after the whole clusters go in, we then dump in all the destem fruit, all of the processed fruit. But then at that point, chill it down, keep it cold for a while. We just kind of hang out. It's called a cold soak. I do cold soaks. When we get the fruit coming in already at 55 degrees, we're already ready to go. Yeah, we're all good. And a cold soak is a beneficial really for the complexity that is developed. In the soup, actually, there's a lot of microbes doing their thing. And some of the microbes are good, some of them may not be so good. But there's a situation where you have balance in there. So you're not trying to kill off everything. And my winemaking kind of is a reflection of the style, allowing things to compete with one another. At some point, within about four days or four and a half days, once fermentation starts happening, they start dying. Mm. And then you have what you call apical dominance. Saccharomyces takes over. Saccharomyces is the main yeast for complete fermentation of your wines. And do <laughs> dominates, and Saccharomyces can handle a lot of brutality in brutal environments. I mean, you're looking at low pH, higher acid, and eventually you get heat and you get alcohol. And that's just a really hard environment for a lot of microbes to exist. In the case of Pinot Noir, fermentation probably will be complete in about five days after that. Cabernet can take two weeks, but Pinot can be really fast. So by mid-next week, that Pinot that we processed today? No, it'll take four or five days of doing nothing, and then another five days. So we're looking at about 10 days, everything is pretty much finished. During that process, we're doing what we call punch downs on the fruit. So we have to punch down the cap. The cap is being made up of skins, seeds, other materials that might be in there. Before fermentation, it's just kind of like a soup inside the tank. But as fermentation starts, the heat and the CO2 creates such pressure and it pushes the cap and all the skins come together and they are compacted. So much so, so hard that you can walk on it. Really? I've done it before, it was really stupid, but I did it before when I was young, young, 27 years old. It is amazingly hard and compact and thick. So you gotta break that up. You gotta break that up every day, a couple times a day, sometimes three times a day, and get the cat skins basically submerged in the, the must, the fermenting juice. You're getting all of the color and a lot of other flavonoids and all the different kinds of phenolic material out of the skins and seeds for that matter. You want to extract as much as you can out of that. So you won't really want to get in there and create a current when you're doing those punch downs. We feed it. So I'll feed my fermentations. Yeah, they need nutrients. I do native yeast fermentation. So basically the yeast that comes in with the grapes, there's yeast flying around in a facility, a great amount that you're breathing in as you're there. It's all that is like a soup that comes in and completes the fermentations and whatever yeast strain you start off with, you may not be finishing with that. And you mentioned we're going to try to use as much of the native yeast as possible, if not exclusively. Yeah, in the air and everywhere. How yeah. do you know if that's enough? It's a lot of this experience. So I've been doing this for decades. And what I have found over the years is that with my native yeast fermentations, I get a better fermentation. I get less stuck fermentations compared to commercial yeast. If I find that I'm not getting the fermentation that I want, I won't hesitate and wait. I will go ahead and make sure that the yeast that I'm inoculating with at least has a really good environment in which it's going into to survive and, and do what I want it to do.
I just find with doing native yeast fermentations, my fermentations are much better. I want no sugar because if I have residual sugar, it leads to a whole host of efforts to try and get that sugar consumed of how we do re-inoculations, which are super hard to do, and fighting bad microbes of eating the sugar and creating things like volatile acidity. And as a winemaker, my whole goal is to get my fermentations complete. And so the best I'm able to do is with those uh, native use fermentations. I love that. We're gonna do a saigné process. Can you describe what that is and why you do it? Yeah, so saigné basically means to bleed uh, in French. And so what we're doing, we're bleeding off juice. I mean, we're able to do a saigné because of the juice coming off of the grapes right now. They've crushed a little bit in the, in the transport. And so when we dump, it just goes into buckets and we use that and we'll, we'll barrel ferment that. And I've been collecting that on every lot. Or the other way you could saigné is once you get it in a tank, you could drain off the tank. Why would you get rid of some of the juice? So what we're doing is concentration. You know, I used to throw away a lot of the juice, but at least for this year, we're going to be using a lot of it. So at least we have that. And it's kind of hard when you're spending $6,000, $7,000 for your fruit. Oh yeah, I'm throwing away 10, 15% of it. But we're looking to produce the highest quality wines. And last year really paid off, paid off in spades. When we would sample out in a vineyard, fruit was tasting ripe. We would get certain numbers of bricks, sugar content. When we bring it back in to the winery, it would be lower in tank by a, by a fair amount. We also got the conversion of sugar from a yeast converting sugar to alcohol was the lowest rate I've ever seen by about 10%. So we ended up with wines that are in a 12 and a half, 12.9 alcohol range. Oh, and alcohol does provide a, a balance. I mean, they do provide structure and all that kind of stuff. But when we have done these saignets, we've concentrated and really built up the body of these wines. You know, they don't come off as being thin or dilute. I mean, they're very expressive and I mean, they're wonderful. So much of this process is about preserving what's there, and that is actually a really hard thing to do. So when the fermentation's complete, where does it go from there? Yeah, so fermentation, and, it, and it's gonna vary. For Pinot Noir, it might be 12 days, you bring it off and you're ready to press. In Cabernet, I may leave it in there for three weeks. Some people will go more than a month. But in Pinots, no, we're, I'm, I'm good to go after 12, 14 days. What we do, we don't do the punch down. So in other words, we leave the cap nice and firm at the top on the day we're going to press. And then we just drain out all the fluid, all the, what we call free run. That will all go to a tank. You know, they still call it must, but really it's wine at that point. It's done with fermentation for the most part. As you drain out all the, the must, uh, the cap drops down to the bottom of the tank and we shovel it out into bins. Those bins are then taken over to the press and we dump it in the press and we press it out. Sometimes people think, oh, press wine is not very good wine. Actually, the first portions of the press are extremely good. We do what we call press fractions and I'm there tasting. And when I get above a certain pressure, I am there tasting to make sure that it's not getting too seedy. Literally, you're starting to, to taste harsh tannins, phenolics and things like this, that there's no need to put in your wine. So then after that point, all the pressed wine that we kept, it goes into the tank. Then we'll settle for a couple days and it's ready to go to the barrel. So one of the things that I thought was interesting is that in uh, Europe, in France in particular, they're allowed to add sugar yes. to their grape juice. Here in California, we are not, right. but we can add acid and they cannot. These are laws of convenience. <laughs> and why, why is that so? Why, why is that working? A lot of convenience because we don't have a problem with sugar creation. 
We have abundant sunshine with a lot less rain. I mean, we just have, we have the warm weather. But we have a law, unlike, let's say, France, they don't add acid because they don't really need to. We do. And that's because naturally malic acid converts to sugar as the grapes ripen, is that right? Um, you're the chemist. <laughs> I believe so. Okay. That's the book you told me to read. Okay. <laughs> so I did the research. You talked about the relationships with the growers. Sure. That these are decades old, mm -hmm. and it's very intentional where you're sourcing grapes from to bar the earth that they're being grown in. Yeah, so, you know, it's really important that, you know, you're sourcing grapes in a terroir that's appropriate for the, that varietal. We spoke a little bit about Pinot Noir being in cooler climate, Cabernet being a little bit warmer, Petit Syrah, Rhone's being a, a more of a hot climate. But you know, it's, it's really, what's the quality of the vineyard itself? The practices of the vineyard management and the owner, are they organic, you know, are they sustainable? In Sonoma, you have to be sustainable now. They're trying to go to organic. Uh, Jami is a Coderone winery, and they went to organic. And before that, they were using pesticides, insecticides, and different kinds of chemicals. Their dirt was dead, very bleached out. The vineyard owner, and she's also the winemaker, they went to change this over to organic. And after about seven to eight years, their topsoil was now alive. The color of it changed. The amount of nutrients that are in there went from zero, basically, up to fully a base that is feeding their plants. But it also has you know, different kind of microbes in there. You have different kind of bugs that are in there. So you actually have flora. Talk about you know, being organic. Well, that's one area where being organic is really, really important in how it can really benefit your vines. You know, you're not doing harm to the fish. You're not doing harm to other you know, species that are out there just for the production of your own. Though so what I'm hearing is it's really important to you to move towards organics and towards sustainability. Yeah. Um, and you're working with these growers, multiple growers, towards that goal. Yeah, we support them by buying their fruit and also by a lot of feedback. Those winemakers, it's very important to us that the source is definitely sustainable. And I mean sustainable in a sense that it does no harm. Because a lot of the, the farming, and it's not just grape farming, has really relied on chemicals to the uh, detriment of, of so many different species and of, of, of across our lands. And so I think the wine industry has really taken it, in Sonoma County in particular, has really taken it to heart. So if you're producing within Sonoma County, you have to be sustainable now. I think that we're now at that point where it's now required. You have some people that maybe are not quite there yet, but yeah, there's pressure to do that. So I will go in, uh, maybe you're using something that's not organic, and I will say, well, hey, do you need to spray a fungicide, let's say. It's, it's raining, whatever, we, we need to get a fungicide on there. There are organic fungicides. It's like, well, their comments say, well, it's really expensive. And I will say, well, I'll pay you more for the grapes. Let's use this. And so we ease them into being a more green farmer, you might say. Not just because we feel good about the product we're making, but if you're looking at using products that are better in the vineyard, ultimately your grapes are going to be better as well. But it, I, mean, I think more than anything else, it's just more of an ethic. You know, I don't do any additives that stay in a wine. We'll use certain kind of components like yeast, you know, did yeast cells, things like that, to basically enhance mouthfeel by extracting more out of the grape. But we don't add tannins. We don't add additions to wines that are artificial. Back up, there is one traditionally accepted additive that we do, and that's gonna be new barrels. And folks, we're gonna talk about those barrels Phil mentioned in our next episode. We'll follow the Pinot grapes that are now fermenting in the tanks to the barrel room, the bottles, and ultimately to your table. I'm Dana Elmquist. Thank you for joining us.